Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. Today's guest is Erica Fretwell. Professor Fretwell is an assistant professor of English at the University at Albany, SUNY. Her book, Sensory Experiments, Psychophysics, Race, and the Aesthetics of Feeling, uncovers the science of sense experience and its influence on experiences of race, gender, and disability in the 19th century. This book is where we're going to be spending the majority of our conversation, but she does write on science and literature, food and race, and on the history of race, print, and disability media. It is awesome to welcome you to the deep dive. Thank you so much, Philip. You know, I want to start off, you know, really at the beginning, because what I realized as I was reading the book and really, no pun intended, diving into it, was that it to my knowledge base, really covered an entire world that was very arcane to me. There's a lot of of visual representation in the book that was familiar, but yet I didn't really know about this world as at all. And so I think that's a really good place to start is how would you define psychophysics? That's a great question. And that's It seems like a simple question, but it's a big question. So simply, I guess, psychophysics was the experimental science of sense experience. So it was a science that used experimental methods in the laboratory to test out people's individual responses to taste, touch, sight, sound, and smell. So that's sort of the most basic answer to what psychophysics is. But it was a lot bigger than that at the same time. What I think is so fascinating about psychophysics, so it was developed in the mid-19th century in Germany, mainly by three practitioners. Their names were E.H. Weber, Gustav Fechner, and Hermann von Helmholtz. What's so fascinating about psychophysics is that it was this science that tried to answer philosophical questions in the laboratory, which seems really counterintuitive today. We would not place philosophers in laboratories today. That's not where they work. But today we sort of think of science and philosophy or art as being completely different areas of study. But in the 19th century and prior to the 19th century, there wasn't this kind of sharp divide that we have today. That divide between philosophy and science or art and science really only took hold actually after World War II. There's a scientist uh, named C.P. Snow, who in the 1940s and 50s claimed that the sciences and the humanities are, quote unquote, two cultures, that they can't really speak to each other. They're sort of at cross purposes. So what psychophysics does really wonderfully in the 19th century is it's this moment where a science could still be a philosophy. And so they were trying to answer these big philosophical questions, and by which I mean like, well, you know, the mind-body problem, which we can kind of trace back to Descartes, uh, who said, I think, therefore I am, right? So it's this idea of mind over matter, that the mind sort of exists apart from the body, it can direct the body. And, you know, there's a lot of debate about 
whether it is mind over matter or whether the material world that's ordered by natural laws, like the laws of physics and thermodynamics, whether the material world really takes precedence um, and the mind is just an effective matter. That was the question motivating psychophysics was what is the relationship between mind and matter and between body and soul? And so it seems kind of crazy that they tried to answer this kind of cosmic question on this impossibly microscopic scale, which is, well, maybe if we test people's sensory responses, we'll find out because the senses were understood as this kind of switch point between material life, the environment, external stimulation like light waves, and then mental life on the inside. And so if we can kind of find out what's going on at this switch point of sensation, then maybe we can develop this theory of the world, really. You know, it's kind of a, kind of a crazy, <laughs> crazy science, but I, that's why I love it. <laughs> but even, even in that answer that you shared, it brings up even other questions, other than the questions that I have <laughs> written down and prepared. And so I'm, I'm chomping to kind of go into this because it's, it's what's interesting is that you mentioned how there was this notion that the sciences and philosophy will be separable from one another. And the minute you said that, it made me think about in our modern day, day times, you know, our, our current time where if science, quote unquote science, is often thought of in layman's terms as tech, which leads us to Silicon Valley. This is a place where folks swear they're philosophers, right? Like many of them editorializing here. So I apologize for those who might not think Peter Thiel is a terrible human being, but someone like him, I think he fashions himself somewhat of a philosopher. And he's a libertarian. <laughs> yeah, a, a libertarian philosopher, but yet he's yeah. very much a part of the sciences in a popular sense of tech and how we have kind of melded their perspective as we come all of our perspectives to a certain extent. So I'm, I'm curious, as I read the book continuously, how like pulling these sort of ain't, you know, more past ways of thinking to where we are now. And I'm curious if how you think about the example as I've just laid out, and you don't have to blame Peter Thiel for all the world's problems if you don't want them. You can. It's a free it's a free space to bash him and others, like Elon Musk and all the rest. But you know, feel free. You don't have to. <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll happily do that. Um, I, I concur with your assessment of the Silicon Valley uh, libertarian tech bros. But I think that yeah. I haven't myself done, as it were, an especially deep dive into their philosophies, apart from what has been sort of widely reported on certainly their political affiliations and philosophies. But I think that if we kind of can historicize and contextualize the way that STEM itself, right, science, technology, engineering, has so come to sort of dominate our social world and our political world and really just the shape of education today, that's really grounded in this kind of post-World War II development of what you know, had called the two cultures. And it's a moment in the post-war, uh, post-war moment when science and tech really become integrated into the state, the nation state, right? Because you've got the arms race, right? The Cold War, working with nuclear technologies and things like that. 
And so that's when you see science, technology, engineering, STEM in general get kind of integrated into the state as part of the state apparatus. And the humanities, of course, don't really, apart from what we might call soft diplomacy, right? So sending course Porgy and Bass, Gershwin's Porgy and Bass going out to com- you know, communist Russia, right? So that's some sort of soft diplomacy for capitalism, which has its, its own very interesting place of Porgy and Bass and that kind of development. But so science technology gets integrated into the state in a way. And, and I think that we're just sort of seeing where that's, what that's led us to. And so why I sort of really enjoy going back to the 19th century in and prior, you know, 18th, 17th, 16th century, when science and philosophy simply were not, they were part of the same program, right? Empiricism. So it's really uh, the history of empiricism that might be worth talking about briefly here. But so empiricism, right, is a philosophy of knowledge, essentially, right, that holds that we can know the world primarily through observation, right? And so this starts with Francis Bacon in the 16th, 17th century, up through John Locke, who, who has his own kind of empirical epistemology or theory of knowledge, right? It says all knowledge comes through the senses. And so from there, that gets increasingly aligned with what science is itself. But science up until this point really just meant knowledge, just knowledge, period, not a particular kind of knowledge, not a particular kind of methodology or research program. It just means the pursuit of knowledge, which is why poets were also scientists too, because they're also seeking to understand the world and universal truths. They're not using empiricism to do it. They're using deductive logic and imaginative thinking to do it, right? But they're also pursuing these universal truths. So psychophysics really comes at this kind of moment in the 19th century. The 19th century is so interesting because this is when the sciences start to professionalize and specialize. You start to see that split between the humanities and the sciences starting to take shape, where disciplines are starting to get organized around particular research methodologies. And psychophysics is kind of like the last science slash philosophy. It's the last science that is pursuing explicitly philosophical questions. And so it kind of fades away by the 1880s. And then the 1890s, you have what's called the new psychology, which is basically what we would understand psychology to be today, which is experimental methods, but not pursuing philosophical questions. It's just kind of focused on the quote unquote hard facts, as it were. And that was another term that I jotted down here that's used, I think, fairly early on in the book, this idea of speculative science. And at first blush, and maybe it's just the way in which I and and others kind of view the world that I feel there's a lot of complexity in the world. And so when you make the point that science is knowledge, I probably fall somewhat into that camp, right? In the sense that It's very much like modern day conversations that purports that science and research and data are unbiased, right? And so they, science has been, I think, somewhat weaponized in this way to say that like, oh, you know, your feelings and all these other things, that's one way in which the world is organized, but the rest of us are only into reason and data and facts and those things are unbiased and math is math and, you know, all these kind of things. And I'm like, well, I don't know if that's true, right? Like, you know, everything has some sort of bias. So when you, the term speculative science, I think for some folks 
in the way in which we think about it would seem maybe controversial where it's not as controversial as it sounds when you start to redefine knowledge in a way that you just described it. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of that, that, you know, so I, I frame, yeah, psychophysics as a speculative science because it's using on the one hand, a kind of highly doctrinaire empiricism, right? I mean, what sounds more scientific than trying to measure people's sensory responses? I mean, it sounds absurd, right? That somehow you can produce calculations about something you smell. Like, how could you possibly render that in numbers? At the same time, especially Gustav Fechner, um, kind of the founder of psychophysics, said that, well, we're going to make these calculations, but actually what they're going to produce is sort of show how inner feeling and introspection is itself an objective fact, right? So there's always going to be an integration of what empiricism, what kind of hard science can't account for into what we're trying to better understand. William James is such an important figure here. I think, you know, a lot of people don't know about psychophysics. Honestly, it was something I stumbled across myself. It really does not get discussed a lot when it comes to the history of science and medicine. But I think people probably might be more acquainted with William James, who was one of the first quote unquote modern psychologists in America, um, and who was very much influenced by Fechner in particular. And James talks about what he calls the quote, wild facts of inner life, the wild facts of consciousness, right? Those facts that are in excess of numerical value or quote unquote objectivity. And so psychophysics kind of inches us towards thinking about science in that kind of broader, almost Jamesian perspective of this pursuit of knowledge that weds kind of empiricist methods to more kind of speculative, abstract, ontological, philosophical questions and, and issues. James developed his theory of knowledge that he called radical empiricism which is kind of important and what I sort of argue psychophysics kind of helped bring into being or was kind of a predecessor to this radical empiricism, which is this idea that we can't just break up the world or study the world into like little discrete objects and parts. We have to look at the relations among them and those relations are real too. And so psychophysics in the way that these practitioners were measuring sensory responses that would lead to kind of broader understandings of consciousness, inner life, the, the wild facts of inner life, you know, it helps us to think about subjective feeling as an objective fact, right? That just because something, it's sort of counterintuitive and paradoxical, but something being subjective actually doesn't preclude it from being objective, that these things are kind of two sides of the same coin, that they're not the opposite of each other. They're kind of the obverse. That makes sense. It definitely makes sense. And I think it speaks to a connection to the complex, which comes up a lot in my work. I'm focused in, on strategy and culture, but those conversations are by their nature, if done, I would I argue if done correctly, lean into these ideas of complexity. It's very difficult to pull things apart, which can happen when things are complicated. I think when we think about processes, processes can be made more simple, right? You can take something that takes five steps and make it four and industrial 
thinking falls very much into that that way of organizing your ideas. But when you're talking about complexity, it's a little bit more difficult to make things separate parts of a process. And when I kind of extrapolate that out a little further, we're kind of, again, kind of meant to divorce the things we can't measure concretely become less important, right? Just so the theory goes, right? If you can't measure it, it doesn't matter. And that seems like you lose a lot in that, I think. Exactly. And I mean, I think what I love about Fechner, and he explains in this absurdly big book called Elements of Psychophysics, it's a very dry book, but itself has some wild facts inside. But he says that we can measure sensory experiences, but we can't really measure consciousness itself, right? So sensory experience is kind of the closest you can get to kind of quantifying the soul, as it were. But he says that, you know, under empiricism, that might seem like a limitation, but actually it's this invitation to think more broadly about experience itself, right? So these limitations really are openings, more more possibility for thinking about the relationship between the body and the soul. And so as, as absurd as it sounds that psychophysics was this science of the soul and tried to measure the soul by quantifying sense experience, it's far more speculative and imaginative how it tries to approach its object of study than it might look at first glance. Uh, one quick sort of funny anecdote is that James himself initially kind of hated psychophysics. He said that this is so dry. You can't, they've sapped the romance. These Germans are stopping the romance out of the study of the soul, out of the study of the mind. You can't just, it's sort of like paint by numbers or something. They're going to translate sensation into numbers. Only in Germany <laughs> could this happen. <laughs> And so it was kind of a, a sick burn <laughs> for William James. But then he kind of comes around and he says, oh, but this underlying philosophy is so fruitful, right? This idea of the kind of unity of the body and soul, the correlation between mind and matter, our place in the universe is so fruitful. So he kind of wanted to do away with the numbers and kind of hold on to the philosophy. My argument is that the numbers are really in service of that philosophy, but it's, it's kind of an interesting shift for, for James himself. Yeah, it's, it's always easy to... to Burn to Germans. <laughs> you know? It is. It really is. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I, I think I want to get into the individual sections of, of the book. I don't think we'll be able to cover the primary senses because I'm, I'm actually probably going to spend a, a little bit of time really on, on the sight and sound. Like I, I kind of anchored a lot of, of my questions there, not exclusively, but I, I must admit that I, I did do that. But that's just a little tease for those. They can go out and get the book and dive into the others. But before we we get into to that breakdown, there's a, a one thing I wanted to talk about, which is more general to the to the moment in time where you that 19th century, this idea of mysticism is really like a lot. It weaves through a, a lot of the book. And I'm not sure if folks really appreciate just how much mysticism, what I'm calling mysticism, I have a, another academic term, so feel free to correct me, but I'm using it as a layman's term, really dominated or was at least a, a fairly dominant force in the way in which Americans viewed their life. And I just saw that throughout the book. You know, these products were positioned that way, you know, powders and just catalogs and 
fortune telling. And, and so I'm curious, like, was that something that you also discovered as you did the research for this book? Or did you kind of go into it knowing this? I did not. This is one of kind of the fun discoveries along the way, for sure. I, I kind of realized, oh, wait a minute. In everything I'm talking about, there's this kind of thread of mysticism and spiritualism or the occult you might use. And yes, there's a few ways to sort of approach that kind of discovery or phenomena, which is that the construction of the quote unquote occult, this kind of constant return to thinking about the place of the spirit um, in the 19th century in part has to do with, as we've just been talking about, the increasing dominance of empirical science, which doesn't really make any room for the spirit, right? It's the scientific materialism that says everything's, this is a mechanistic world. Everything's ordered by the laws of nature, right? Light waves will behave a certain way. Sound waves are going to behave a certain way. Got the law of thermodynamics. Energy can neither be created nor destroyed. It will, it will, but will change form, change shape. So you see this kind of increasing drive towards this vision of the world as orderly as following scientific laws. However, the more those laws or the more that kind of paradigm becomes dominant, you see that there is so much more that science still cannot account for, right? And so psychophysics, precisely because it's the science philosophy that is really trying to find this middle ground. It's saying, on the one hand, the world is explicable by physical and physiological laws and laws of chemistry, etc. But it still wants to make room for the soul, for the will, for autonomy, for agents, for human agency, right, in the world, right? And so, you know, it had, it's this model of the body-soul relation that's what's called monistic, which is this theory of the body-soul as kind of, again, one, two parts of the same kind of coin, right? Instead of mind over matter or matter over mind, they're saying actually it's, it's both together at the same time. And so you see, especially in the chapters on vision and sound, the way that people are kind of using the language of psychophysics and the kind of materialism of sensation to account for the spirit, for what they understand as the spiritual world, right? So in the first chapter where I talk about the just the identification of the phantom limb phenomenon and William Mumler's spirit photography, ostensibly photographing ghosts, right? It's not, you know, that's a kind of spiritualism that doesn't see itself as resistant to or antithetical to science. They see it as part of science, right? That actually, guess what? Ghosts, spirits follow the law of thermodynamics, right? That these are two, you know, belief systems that complement each other, or at the very least, certainly don't exclude each other, right? So that's sort of what, you know, sort of I tease out throughout the book is this kind of desire for what I call like impossible embodiment, right? So there's lots of preoccupations with the spirit world, soul life, mental life, but one that retains materialism and flesh, and this is where race comes in, right? Um, especially in the chapter on sound, how can we think about kind of utopian communities and congregations of these kind of transcendental spiritual connections, you know, consciousness that transcends the body, but still retaining racial purity, right? In an era of eugenics, right? 
at the same time as there is a preoccupation with spirits that are kind of fleshy and corporeal and bodily and bodies that can be spirits too. In the chapter on perfume, it's, we can think of perfume as this kind of psychophysical experiment in turning particular bodies into spirits that can kind of diffuse and float and be kind of free-floating kind of forms. So it's that kind of body-soul nexus that runs throughout the book and that comes out in the kind of constant kind of return to what you might call mysticism or occult preoccupations. And that's that sight element is, like you mentioned in the phantom photography, right? So we've alluded to it. And that is something that I think I've seen those types of images probably like fleeting in museums and, you know, we've all seen ghosts and, you know, all, like, you know, all <laughs> these kind of pop culture kind of references. But when you had the connection that to me that was really interesting that I never really put together was coming out of a national traumatic event like the Civil War and people dealing with this idea of, of mass death and connecting that so much to wanting to understand the images. And when you had the photos of um, Mary Todd and, you know, all those kind of things, like I was like, I don't know, it just really struck me. And so I wanted to spend a little bit of time kind of pulling that apart a little bit, because I think within that particular section talking about sight, there's clearly this like kind of dance between the visible and the invisible, the seen and the unseen. And I think as it applies to race, that is such an embodiment of at least a portion of the Black experience, right? Like you think about Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, this idea that you're both seen and unseen, right? You're seen in some of the most extreme ways because kind of the society works with you as the fulcrum of opposition, right? But yet you're unseen, like when I'm standing on a line and someone just walks in front of me and I'm like, I'm six feet tall and 200 pounds. You saw me, but you didn't, right? I think there's the Ralph Ellison Invisible Man concept, right? So I packed a lot in there, but I wanted to give you a chance to kind of walk through that that idea of the visible and the invisible seen unseen in relation to black bodies and and that particular section of the of the book I, I really kind of spent a lot of time there yeah absolutely Jasmine Nicole Cobb um, has done a lot of work I mean there's a lot of wonderful work around blackness and as being simultaneously hyper visible and invisible at the same time as your own anecdotes have just sort of fleshed out. And so it's sort of interesting to place that specifically within the context of spirit photography, um, as you'd identified. So just for listeners who might not be aware, so spirit photography was developed by a jeweler named uh, William Mumler in 1861, so just as the Civil War had started. And basically, he used what's called double exposure. So he used effectively a glass plate with a figure that had already been kind of put on chemically sort of attached to that glass plate and then used that kind of quote dirty plate took another photo of someone who was bereaved whose son or child or husband had just died and then what comes out is an image of both this prior figure plus the new 
sitter or client. So it looks like this living person is in the company of their deceased. And so this is wildly popular and instantly controversial. I mean, people immediately kind of debunked it as a hoax, but that didn't stop people from believing in it or at least wanting to believe in it. And these were also very expensive uh, photos too. So it was available to a certain class of grievers. No, exactly. Right. I mean, Emily Ogden has a great book called Credulity that speaks very much. It's also, it's invested, uh, she looks at mesmerism in the 19th century and efforts to debunk mesmerism. And boy, does it speak to our current moment. Yeah, you, you, there are certain things in people that you, you can't debunk. And the more you try to debunk them, the more bunk they are, I guess, you know, you just, it can't, it doesn't work, right? Yeah, the more um, you push back, the more it yeah. puts them on their heels yeah. and they dig in, like it becomes more true, but continue, go exactly. on. Exactly, exactly. So, so in any case, so these are, you know, wildly popular uh, photographs, very controversial. And people, again, were trying to debunk them and say that you, these are not real ghosts. Others were saying, using Fechner's work in the language of psychophysics to say, no, ghosts have chemical properties too and can absolutely be captured on the photograph because the camera's eye is far more sensitive to light than the human eye. Um, And so what's interesting here is the way that there's this kind of crisis of vision and visibility in this moment where all of a sudden there's these new kind of psychophysical and scientific laws that are showing that, well, hey, guys, you know, vision isn't the most perfect sense. It's not a godly sense. There's the eye is fallible. We've got blind spots. We've got astigmatism. There's all sorts of things that we just don't see. At the same time that physics and thermodynamics is revealing that, well, there's a whole world of invisible energy and force out there. And maybe our visible world is actually subordinate to the invisible world. So we can't see much, it turns out. What we see might be wrong. We might be misperceiving the world. And to boot, there are all these invisible spiritual energies, apparently, that are ordering our lives. So there's this real crisis around visibility. And then William Mumler comes in with his spirit photographs, coincides directly with the Civil War and the mass death, mass losses of uh, soldiers' lives and families torn apart. So this crisis of visibility directly overlaps with the national crisis of the Civil War. So these photographs become a way of working through grief by working through kind of the material properties of grief. Like, does grief have like visual, visible, chemical properties? And so that's sort of what I'm kind of trying to tease out here, the way that grief works at the level of visual perception, but just just above or just below the threshold of visual perception. You know, what is the reality that lies just above and below that threshold? And so of course, and then this also coincides with the identification of phantom limb pain by a surgeon um, and a neurologist named Esquire Mitchell. And phantom limb pain is, you know, when amputees or people who have lost a limb still feel like they have that limb, even though they don't. This became the seed of what would be called the body image. So it's the mental image of the body that actually drives how our physical body inhabits space. So my interest is really contextualizing, well, okay, this all takes place basically overlaps with the Civil War, which is a war about over slavery. And so, you know, it's important to understand, even though these histories with spirit photography and the phantom limb might seem to have very little to do with race. In fact, it has everything to do with race. Because to your point, Phil, it's the black body that is constantly moving across that visual threshold, right? 
of what's visible, what's invisible, right? And so blackness is really kind of what gets theorized as this form of embodiment that is both kind of fleshy and visible, but also at the same time, it's ghosted, right? I mean, know the history all too well. It's a history that we're still living out all too well, which is that what the idea Hartman calls the non-event of emancipation, which is that Black people are emancipated only to be immediately disenfranchised and forced into structural you know, subordination in alternate ways, right? And so that that kind of Black vitality gets kind of ghosted in the moment that it comes into being. And so I'm interested in thinking about spirit photography and tracking how spirit photography and the phantom limb, what, what do we do with these invisible bodies? What kind of histories do these invisible bodies animate that comes to the fore with these, the spirit photograph of Mary Todd Lincoln with the ghost of her husband, Abraham Lincoln, and their deceased child, Tad? as well. So, you know, we're sort of thinking about the material kind of construction of the spirit, but that construction is always racialized. And one last thing I'll say to that point is that in these spirit photographs, it's very rare that you have black ghosts in these photographs. Like the spirit world actually transfers, right? The spirit world really reflects the the quote unquote real world, the material world, the social relations. The sitters are always white. So that already suggests that Black people are somehow incapable of grieving and of loss, right? So it frames Black personhood as somehow less capable of feeling. And then in the rare instances that you have a ghostly figure in these photographs being Black, it's usually only ever in service of kind of reinforcing the whiteness of the sitter as a feeling subject. So there's, you know, there's a few photographs of like a Native American figure and an African figure, like as ghosts, these kind of spirit guides for the living sitter who's white, right? Which again, just sort of props up this fiction of being white as being capable of grief and feeling and that these are kind of spiritual ancestors that are in the past, right? Again, this is in the Civil War when, we're seeing black emancipation and you know citizenship at least nominally right but already sort of relegating indigenous and black life to history to the dustbin of history as it were so that's sort of how we can think about the way that blackness itself becomes a kind of phantom right that haunts or ghosts this kind of grief and these developments during and after the war and you see this still today, right? Like when, because I remember that photo with the Native American and the Black figure, and it's very much like, I'm like, oh, this is, this feels like yoga class, right? (laughs) Or, you know, or like, you know, the magical Negro complex of Hollywood, right? Like I, I really enjoyed Queen's Gambit, for example, on Netflix, but I didn't love the superhero Black character who kind of saved her at her lowest moment. Like that was kind of whack, but you know, it's different, but we see how these threads kind of connect and weave together. And one of the things that we kind of talked about, like you mentioned, I think you mentioned this in the book or you frame it a little bit that I wanted to spend a little bit of time on is the the phantom limb as, as sort of a metaphor for the dislocated geography of slavery, right? The slave trade severing the Black identity from Africa, bringing it into the new world, but yet we feel that, right? In a contemporary way, if I think about, you know, Beyonce's latest special on on Netflix, uh, not Netflix, on Disney Plus, sorry about that. But 
you know, there was a lot of debate about it as a spectacle because it ties to it ties to Africa, but sort of an Western African American contextualized idea of of Africa, right? Where we're all kings and queens, yeah. and it, you know, and it, 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 right, it right. doesn't really capture like the full essence of it, and it's not in a way to hurt or harm. But it made me think, like, is that part of that dislocated geography, right? You're of a thing, not of a thing. You feel the thing, but it's it's not there anymore, right? Much like the yeah. amputated limb, right? Uh, yeah, entirely. I mean, it's really interesting to think about the way that the phantom limb, for one thing, emerges at out basically is this medical condition that emerges out of the civil war because there were so many amputees. And so you had the first systematic studies of phantom limbs, but then how it moves from that to becoming this really important kind of trope or metaphor or kind of concept for a lot of black studies scholars today to understand the kind of emotional effects of the middle passage. Right. I mean, and this goes back to like, I think Franz Fanon was one of the first to really make this link in the mid 20th century, where he likened in the his uh, the more famous essay, uh, The Fact of Blackness. I think it's in Black Skin, White Masks, but he had basically likened black being under colonial modernity to amputation. And he said that the phantom limb is this what he called a false consolation of accepting one's condition of oppression. So he's like, I reject the phantom limb. It's pretends something's there that, that's been torn away and lost. But more recently, scholars like Sadia Hartman, the poet and critic, Nathaniel Mackey, they talk about the phantom limb as it's really important. It's become this really powerful metaphor for what they call the violent kind of discontinuities of slavery, the experience of loss, of losing affiliation and kinship. And so for them, these traces of memory kind of function like a phantom limb, right? In that what is felt, as you had said, is, is no longer there. And that's not for them a bad thing. That's just part of the lived condition that's centered not on this kind of simulated or fake wholeness, but instead this kind of recognition of the amputated body in its amputatedness, like the recognition of this brokenness as being broken, so it's just so interesting to sort of chart how the phantom limb moves across these kind of material and metaphorical registers, especially when it comes to race. And I think it's so powerful that they're theorizing the phantom limb as effectively a black sensation, right? Like we don't think of sensation as being like racialized, like how is one sensation black, but not black or white or brown or anything like that. But they're theorizing it as a specifically black sensation, much in the same way that W.E.B. Du Bois formulated double consciousness as a black sensation, right? And that's just, and the phantom limb there actually is kind of, we could say, because it emerges out of the 19th century, the Civil War, it's kind of a precedent or the forebear of double consciousness, right? It's that split self. It's that internal feeling of a split, broken self produced by chattel slavery, the abandonment of reconstruction, all those false promises and that racial violence. Yeah, and it's, the other thing I want to say on on site is, again, like, can we believe our eyes, right? As someone who's, for example, red-green colorblind, right? Like, you know, color looks different to different people. And, you know, you fast forward to sort of our contemporary environment. You know, we live in the world of increasingly AI, deep fake 
type of technology. You know, we are in a never ending political cycle dominated by these notions of what's real and what's not as it becomes easier to manipulate video, right? There's no, any clip you see can, you know, if you don't see the full like five, 10 minutes of what went down, you might not really get the full story. And even even then it's hard, right? And as much as these things seem like new reality that we're wrestling with and the technology has made them perhaps more prevalent and easier to do, it's not a strictly a contemporary conversation, right? Like I think you've highlighted perfectly in the book that these notions of challenging our senses have been around for a long time. I bring it forward in a contemporary way because of our body politic. But, you know, I think that idea of questioning, like, can we believe our own eyes, right? Is that possible? Yeah. I mean, I think the answer is sort of a resounding no. And what do we do about that? And this comes out, especially with regards to race and racialization. This is a big problem as in the 19th century, I think up through today and sort of other ways. But, you know, this idea that race is somehow evident on on the skin, right, on the surface of the body, right, that's a, a significant preoccupation with this crisis of visibility, what happens when you can't, you have to, you know, the idea that you have to see it to believe it doesn't hold water any longer because you can't believe what you see. And so America's just absolute obsession with categorizing and taxonomizing and hierarchizing people according to race and racial designations faces a crisis because it's, because race is not visible, right? It is constructed and it's reduced to melanin, but it far evades that. And so, you know, we see how that crisis of racialization and the crisis of vision kind of really powerfully interact here and I think informs what's going on today. I mean, in relationship to AI and deep fakes, I think it's sort of really interesting to think about kind of spirit photography in that long trajectory. I think obviously right now it's much more pernicious. And I would say that the spirit photographs did not travel as quickly as deep fake videos do today. Um, And they take a lot longer to make. And I I think the stakes are a bit lower, but you still have these yeah, fundamental questions of what's real, what's not, and what visual technology is doing to manipulate the eye precisely because as people are realizing in the 19th century, the eye is manipulable. I mean, up until this point, it was considered completely objective. It was a scientific instrument. And so what happens now when sight is subjective, when you can be, you know, have the wool pulled over your eyes, as it were, and all the kind of really pressing, not just philosophical, but political questions and problems that arise from that, you know, when people are basically have competing belief systems and competing realities. Yeah, you're which is a problem today. <laughs> yeah, definitely. We live in completely different different realities in, in many cases. It's I'm not gonna get on this tangent, but when you were talking about the way in which we try to itemize and categorize race and put us in these definitions, these kind of classifications, it reminds me of the book Racecraft. And I love that book for a lot of reasons because it challenged me to push back on some of my own notions and lived experiences around race, which I'm probably, even though I've, I've read the book a few years ago and kind of use it a lot, I'm probably still doing that work. But I love the fact that they called it 
racecraft for a reason, right? Because it was tying into this notion of witchcraft that we've created this belief system that has no actual meaning other than the meaning that we've imbued it. And as you were giving your description, I, I didn't have this in my notes, but it seemed like that's, that fits so squarely into this conversation around psychophysics and mysticism and and how we're kind of yeah. tying all this stuff together. You know, it's, yeah. it's crazy how that kind of happened. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, and part of what happens too is that, so you have this crisis of vision kind of a crisis of the senses happening right now or in the right now I'm <laughs> in the in the now of the 19th century um so what happens you know how do you go about then how does white supremacy go about reasserting these taxonomies and classifications well it goes even further inward and again this is where the psychophysics comes in because it then becomes about well okay race isn't purely about heredity right it's not strictly biological nor is it strictly social, but it then it becomes about your capacity to feel, which goes back to kind of the spirit photographs and the phantom limb, right? So people get racialized based on their the attunement of their senses, their ability to sense the world effectively, like how good is your sense of taste, how good is your musical ear, right? That the capacity to be really kind of have auditory sensitivity to tell the difference between particular notes actually becomes a way to racialize people with, of course, predictably, right? White people have the best, <laughs> the most finely tuned senses. And of course, black people, uh, quote unquote, primitives at the bottom don't, right? We know that story, but it's interesting. And it's, I think, worth reflecting on all the kind of micro ways that racialization happens, because it's not just about skin color. It's not just about heredity. It's not just about class position. I mean, it's all those things are part of it, right? But it happens at such a micro level, right? That we wouldn't think of perception and affect being part of a kind of racial assemblage, but it actually is, right? The capacity to feel and sense becomes a way of organizing people and taxonomizing them. And in the medical field, making decisions about who gets pain medicine and who doesn't. Absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot of- I mean, you know- Maybe you know this already, but you know the history of gynecology is absolutely horrific. With uh, yeah. Marion Sims experimenting on unanesthetized enslaved uh, black women, yeah. and that's how you get the speculum. I mean, it's there are real material consequences to these theories of racialized peoples as being, yeah, less less able to feel, as impervious to pain. Yeah, it's um, and and there's tons of folks doing that work. You know, Dorothy Roberts has obviously written extensively yeah. on it. Yeah, when I can remember an author, I always want to give him a shout out. <laughs> um, even though this, I all wonderful. I, I I often miss folks, and I'm sure in this conversation I've missed tons of people that were probably re- referring to. It's the Fields who wrote Racecraft, by the way, Barbara Fields, and I can't remember yeah. the other Fields. I apologize to the other Fields, but there are two Fields um, connected to Racecraft. <laughs> You know, I, I want to get to the the final two segments of the show. I didn't even get the sound, and I wrote a whole big thing about it because <laughs> um, you mentioned this thing about, um, you know, I jotted down this quote from the book, and I'm, I'm going to read it right here. That music culture is a way to cultivate sympathy in a diverse population, a means to promote national unity, and and then my question was sort of like, 
music as racial progress, question mark. And, mm-hmm. and, I, and I jokingly was having a conversation about how if you watch any sort of coming of age, 60s, 70s movie, you know, Remember the Titans or whatever, or yeah. anything in the Vietnam era when people have to come together from different class groups or different racial groups, Motown is the soundtrack that will make that will make that happen. So jokingly, I was kind of like, is music racial progress? Right. And and you know, <laughs> hip hop has clearly become like when I was growing up, hip hop was just black people music, right? And the right. odd, weird white kid. Now hip hop is just music. You know, like me and my boys were yeah. arguing very loudly a couple of weeks ago about different things about hip hop. And it's like hip hop isn't there's no distinction between hip hop and pop music. Now it just yeah. It's just music. It's just in the world, right? But anyway, that's a lot to say. Like, before we get to the last two segments, I do want to kind of maybe pull that sentiment apart a little bit about music as racial progress, even though I'm being facetious with the Motown stuff. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, so it's this idea that, you know, music at the level of the arrangement of notes, but then also people's, again, like how finely tuned their musical ear is, that that can generate sympathy and sentiments and fellow feeling that will sort of bring people together. It's a very kind of utopian, but very like, I mean, it's totally whitewashing. It's a very universalist kind of model of what music can do. Oh, it'll bring us together in harmony. Well, guess what? Those hierarchies are still there, right? So it's a very kind of classically like, late 19th century progressive vision that really just certifies the supremacy of whiteness, but tries to sort of make these gestures towards kind of multi-ethnic or interracial community um, and sort of emotional harmony. But, But a way to sort of materialize that at the level of music and at the level of hearing I love what Pauline Hawkins does because she's, you know, she's a, a black writer who wrote this novel, Of One Blood, which if you haven't read it, it is a wild, it's a wild novel. It's just so wonderful. It's sort of an early iteration of Pan-Africanism, a few decades ahead of Marcus Garvey. But she, you know, she was a singer before she was a writer. She also edited um, a magazine, The Colored American Magazine. It's so, just a really phenomenal person. But so in her novel, you know, she sort of integrates her musical knowledge into her vision of a kind of pan-African utopia, you know, in which music, which is the music that she, slave spirituals in particular for her, right, become this vehicle. I mean, there's just no other way to describe it, but a kind of like a transpersonal Black consciousness, right? So that Black kinship that's been severed by slavery in the Middle Passage can get reassembled through song. So that's really powerful. And I think that's the way that she uses it. I love the way that she uses it. There are other ways that it gets used, like in the quote you had pulled, where it's, depending on who's making that statement, it can be a little uh, suspicious or specious. But but Hopkins, I think, just kind of takes that kind of psychophysical discourse of music and harmony and just really kind of plays with it and experiments with it in fun ways, in important political ways. Yeah, I mean, the book is really fantastic. In this conversation, we barely scratched on the surface. Like one of the things that I was thinking to myself as I was reading it was like, God damn, this is exhaustive. Like you spent some time in some goddamn libraries and in some stacks and going through microfish and all all kinds of stuff. Because I was like, yo, where are you finding these pamphlets? (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I'm really grateful for digitization, is what I'll say. So I got to avoid the microfiche, but 
like the Colored American magazine is digitized. It's wonderful. And I, mm. I encourage everyone to go through the pages. I mean, it's just phenomenal um, to go through. So I, th- this book was made possible. I mean, I don't know if this is a book could have been written in the 1990s. I, this I is mean, very much uh, indebted it, to digitization. It probably could have been written, but you'd have been crawling through some dusty <laughs> old stuff, like literally putting up like old pictures to like a light on some old like exactly. Da Vinci Code type mess. Like, exactly. I was like, wow, this is crazy. So I want to get us to Off the Dome, which is just a couple of yeah. fire questions and then the drop. So, you know, just kind of first thought that comes to your head. And I have three of them this time okay. around. So in keeping with sort of the deep work and exhaustive research that you've done for this book, if there's anyone past or present that you could collaborate with, who would that person be? But oh, you you touched on one. every random German mystic <laughs> known to, known to man. And so I was like, I got to figure out who you're going to come up with. <laughs> Oh, who would it be? Oh, that's a tough question. I mean, Fechner just takes the cake. Gustav Fechner, you got to, his book, the, the Little Book of Life After Death is just trippy. So, I mean, he would be a fun collaborator, though. I don't know I'd want to work with him. You know, working with Germans is, is one thing, right? I can, they're fun to read, but I don't know if collaboration <laughs> would work. I'm not, I don't know that I can really, really answer that. Who would I want to collaborate with? I think maybe this is, Maybe sounds lame, but I think Emily Dickinson would be fun to collaborate with. Okay. She's a very collaborative. She's a collaborative writer and thinker. In her her sociality, the way her social life was, I think actually, is helpful for us today because she didn't leave the house, uh, which most of us are also not doing today. But she had a very creative and robust network of friends and intimates. And I think that she would sort of be fun, I think, to collaborate with maybe maybe some foods and recipes. She had a okay. sweet tooth. So I think that I would gravitate towards that. And I think she's also useful for us in thinking about how we get through, at least until that vaccine comes out. <laughs> okay, fair enough. And, you know, the, the book obviously talks a lot about senses and we touched primarily on sight and sound, but it does go into taste and touch and so on and so forth. So... Of the senses, if you can have one of your senses be enhanced into your own superpower, which sense would it be? Probably, ooh, does the sixth sense count? It <laughs> Do can. I think I be tele- Maybe telepathic. I don't know if I want to know people's thoughts, but that would be fun to think about. <laughs> I, would lo- I would love that. I mean, especially given our talk about spiritualism. Yeah, actually, if I had some sort of enhanced uh, sense that could... Uh, get into frequency with some of the uh the, the other spirits uh, i think that would be pretty cool if not that then a sense of smell i have a horrible sense of smell so i could probably use a little boost in that department okay <laughs> there you go and, and finally my last off the dome is if a regular person just a layman out there could understand one thing about psychophysics what would it be it would be that the body and soul are in correspondence with each other, but, and they don't work separately from each other. So that I think would be is, is sort of the most distilled uh, version of psychophysics. But I think psychophysics, another way 
a more fun way of distilling psychophysics would be to say, the world is material and scientific, but also really trippy. <laughs> That's psychophysics. <laughs> it's trippy. Like the world is trippy. Yeah. <laughs> that is world. a great summation. <laughs> so, we're going to get to the drop, even though the, the show was filled with drops and the book is a tremendous yeah. drop in and of itself <laughs> in terms of references and things to check out and read. So it's just a recommendation to our listeners. It can be anything. It doesn't need to be super heavy or serious, whatever. So I can go okay. first. You can go first. And, um, and drops can also be more than one. It doesn't have to be okay, just good. one, but one is fine. Okay, good. I have about, like two, maybe. One is sort of a fun drop. One is Four Seasons Total Landscaping. I just want people to remember it and not forget about it. Keep it in your hearts. Keep it close to you. Hopefully there will be an oral history of like the three or four hours that led up to that a masterful, spectacular event. <laughs> um, so that's my job. But um, I'm still processing that that event, actually. So, but sort of on the on the the topic, if we're going to talk about cons and and grifting, um, I would uh, recommend watching um, The Vow on HBO, and then after that, watching Seduced, which I think is on Stars. Two very different documentaries on Nexium, which I'm not sure if you'd heard of that, Phil, but it's the upstate New York, Albany area sort of sex cult that got exposed. I'm in the area. I actually did a little disaster tourism and gentrify the sort of office where they had been running their, their pyramid scheme. Um, but I've become really obsessed with it, not just because it's local, but it's just insane. It's this crazy, like, condensation or consolidation of all the things that are basically going on in our moment, which is like grifting, just the way that that becomes and test like capitalism, like late capitalism and neoliberalism, which is tethered to like white feminism and corporate feminism and that sort of ethos of wellness, like the Gwyneth Paltrow goop like snake oil salesman line uh, for rich white women, this empty neoliberal rhetoric of empowerment, but that somehow like working on yourself and becoming rich will make the universe a better place, which is like what these people actually thought when they joined Nexium. I mean, all of this just gets all distilled. And then it's like really just a cult that's part Scientology and part like Amway pyramid scheme, part like men's rights movement, uh, misogyny, yeah straight up statism on the side. I mean, it's, it's just polygamy. I mean, it's just, it's so it's, there's just like 10,000 crazy things going on with this cult. And gladly Keith Raniere is, has, has been convicted to life in prison, but that conviction happened like a week before the election. And yeah. I mean, just the way even just Nexium itself kind of exploded and justice was actually served <laughs> with Raniere. And that happened like three days before the election, which is, yeah, it's, so it's just quite a moment for America right now. But I do recommend The Vow on HBO, followed by Seduce. The Vow is interesting because it was mainly following kind of the upper management folks in Nexium that defected. But you can tell that they haven't really, they're like very disillusioned with Ranieri, but you can tell that they're still sort of clinging to this kind of neoliberal wellness world. So they haven't really been disillusioned fundamentally. And then Seduced is interesting because it just really kind of walks you through how this cult works and how it truly kind of indoctrinated and manipulated people. So I would, I suggest those two things. I'm, and I will talk to anyone if anyone wants to be in contact with me about it. It's sort of a new obsession. I, so. I think that will be a whole other show. 
Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I've watched as well, and I'm not even going to editorialize in this moment, but I'll leave it there to say that can literally be an entire other episode and show. <laughs> and those are absolutely, and those are great <laughs> drops. My drop this week is actually a book that I'm rereading because I had a digital copy. I read it years ago, and and then I got a a new, well, not a new hard, a new copy for me, but a, a hard copy um, from Thrift Books. I love Thrift Books, so shout out to Thrift Books. I get a lot of stuff from them, probably too much as the stacks grow around me. But I want to recommend um, Post War by um, Tony Jute. Um, it's J-U-D-T. And um, he has passed away, but I think it's a really fascinating book about your rebuilding after World War II. And, you know, if you're just even a contemporary person of history, that sort of gets summed up as like World War II ended, Hitler killed himself. Maybe they throw in the Nuremberg trials, the Marshall Plan, Berlin Wall. Then the Berlin Wall came down. Like that's pretty much like how most of us, I think, high school history kind of sums it all up. But he goes on a much more interesting journey. And, you know, even if you just read the first parts of the book, just detailing the massive dislocation between countries and people and how long it took folks to get back to where they were from and it just is, I think, is a fascinating story. And as, and as we head into a migratory future with climate change and climate disaster that is filled with migration, I think it, there's important lessons to be learned in that book, which is why I kind of went to Thrift Books and went to get a hard copy of it rather than a digital copy that I had. So Post-War by Tony Jude is a great book, and that is my drop. This has been a fantastic conversation. I loved having you on the show. Thanks so much for being on The Deep Dive. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure having Professor Fretwell join me on The Deep Dive. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarflungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, wherever you are in your life's journey, I thank you. See you on the other side.